You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. Stephen Bopart uh, is a professor at uh, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and we're going to talk about uh, visualizing the tumor microenvironment, which is super, super interesting to me, and uh, hopefully uh, exosomes or extracellular vesicles that uh, I guess are associated with all cell-to-cell communication. So, Steve, thanks for coming. Sure. Thanks, Richard. All right, very good. Well, if, if you don't mind, tell me about your research and uh, your words. What's it about? Yeah, sure. So uh, our research really is the basis for developing new optical imaging technologies that allow us to, in a very uh, non-invasive manner, look at cells and molecules and the dynamics that are happening uh, in tissue. And, uh, and we go about this. Uh, actually, this work came about because we developed a new optical uh, light source or laser source that um, allows us then to excite different molecules within tissue and um, and enable them to emit light uh, as optical signatures of their activity, things such as um, fluorescence from these molecules, NADH and FAD um, signals or, or optical signals from collagen or various interfaces. And all of this comes about from the tissue inherently. We don't add any dyes or contrast aids to give us that contrast. And, um, and so this has really opened up for us a, a wide range of new applications, both to explore you know, fundamental questions in, in biology uh, and carcinogenesis, as well as uh, potentially new diagnostic biomarkers that might have clinical significance. So this has, uh, for us, been a very exciting endeavor because it's an example of how new technology is just opening up uh, many different realms in, in the life sciences and in medicine. So are you making the uh, cells fluoresce, or what's the mechanism by which you can use uh, spectroscopy and look at them under a microscope? Exactly, yeah. So the, the processes that we're exciting are all uh, what they call nonlinear optical uh, processes. And, and this occurs when um, there's the right photons with the right wavelengths, and, and they arrive at the same time, and, and they will excite things such as uh, molecules in the tissue that will autofluoresce, produce their, their own unique fluorescence, or based on the structure. So for instance, the collagen or those, those boundaries, those interfaces, um, that discontinuity produces uh, this nonlinear effect. And it allows us then to, to generate those signals from various tissue components and collect those and then create images out of those signals. Um, and so a lot of this is what we like to call an optical biopsy. Uh, where we can visualize all of these these different structures and molecules again in a, lab, a label-free manner. So we're not putting anything into the tissue yet. We get this rich uh, amount of, of optical signals and, and information out from tissue. Um, I often like how, to say, 
quick question. Like, how are you? How are you doing it? Are you shining light on, uh, and, and that does the excitation, or you know, how is excitation happen? Exactly. Yeah. So, so this new laser source that we developed, um, it it starts with a laser in uh, that's generating optical pulses, so very short pulses of light. And those are used to pump uh, what's called a photonic crystal fiber. So it's an optical fiber that has structure to it. And when the light passes through that fiber, uh, it tends to spread in wavelengths. So what we get out is what we call a super continuum. So a wide range of different wavelengths that span roughly 700 nanometers all the way up to about 1300 nanometers. Um, these are wavelengths that you know, the human eye can't necessarily see um, you know, on its own. We have to use detectors to detect this light. And, uh, and so then these pulses come out of the fiber and they go through uh, what's called a pulse shaper. And this pulse shaper allows us to, to really control the, um, you know, the shape of that pulse, to make it shorter, to make it nice and clean. And so when that light, those pulses finally get, um, you know, they get passed through a, a microscope and through an objective and they get focused onto the tissue. And, and so those pulses then interact with the tissue at a particular point. Um, and it stimulates these nonlinear processes. And at each point, the tissue then you know, emits these new wavelengths of light, uh, and we collect those. And simply by raster scanning our beam over the tissue, um, we can build up an image, a picture of that tissue then at each of these different wavelengths with all these different optical properties. So it, it's, um, it, you might think of it as an advanced microscope that uses a laser to scan across the tissue, excite and generate the new forms of light that we get back. That's amazing. Can you can you tune it for depth or for density so you could uh, you know go deeper and look at different structures? Yeah, we have a number of different uh, knobs. You know, we can tweak on this. We can change the wavelength of of those photons that we're putting in, and those will cause different molecules to get excited in different ways. Uh, or we can get signals from different elements of the tissue. Uh, we can also focus those pulses deeper into tissue, uh, and so we can get a three-dimensional image uh, out. Uh, of all these signals. Now, I have to say that in biomedical imaging, in particular in microscopy, there's always this inherent trade-off between uh, depth of imaging and resolution. So the higher the resolution that we want, generally that means we can't image as deep, we can't image over such a wide, you know, a lateral extent. So what that means is we can only image up to, say, roughly a millimeter deep into tissue. And we can really only image over a few millimeters um, you know, laterally across the, so we're talking really small areas, but at the same time, there's very high resolution features within that small volume. And we can see individual cells that are moving around with um, these nano, nano, nanometer sized vesicles um, that you had mentioned. And uh, we can see a lot of the different structures. So even though it's a small area, there's a lot of information that we get out. Well, big prize is, can you do this in vivo? Can you scan tissue without uh, it being destructive and, you know, while the organism's alive somehow? Exactly. And, uh, and so that, that's our goal, and, and that's, we have demonstrated that as well. So one of the advantages of this label-free approach, and I should say that, you know, there's been many, uh, many investigations, many researchers have looked at uh, adding fluorescent labels to tag and identify different cell structures. And uh, that's been an effective way, but you're introducing... Uh, essentially a contrast agent that may or may not target where you're looking for uh, what you're looking for. And, uh, and there's toxicity effects often associated with it. So with our label-free approach, we can go in and really without perturbing that environment, we can look at the cells and the dynamics. 
And what we've shown is in, in a number of cases, yes, in vivo, we can, uh, we can expose tissue, uh, expose a tumor like they would do during surgery. And we can go in with our microscope and we can, uh, in, in vivo, we can look at the blood flow that's circulating through the vessels. We can watch cells that are moving in and out of the vessels. We've seen cells, tumor cells that are aggregating, that are collecting. We've seen immune cells that are really attacking those tumor cells. Uh, just a, a wealth of dynamics that we, we can then image in vivo. Um, now, what we've even gone to for our next step is to think about what we like to call the living biopsy. So in medicine, uh, you know, a physical biopsy is where you go in and you, you want to take out a small piece of tissue so the pathologist can look under a microscope, uh, you know, what is going on microscopically. Uh, what we want to do, however, and, and what, what's usually done is when that tissue comes out, uh, the first thing that pathologists do is they place it in formalin or a chemical that really kills all the cells in the tissue. And it's an effort to try to preserve the structure. Um, and that's what they make a diagnosis. But what we claim is that really throwing away a lot of important information about the cell dynamics, the metabolism. Um, and so can we actually take out tissue instead of killing it right away? Can we put it into a chamber and keep it alive? Can we culture it um, much like they do tissue and cell cultures already? culture it and try to keep it as viable as long as possible, maybe a couple hours, maybe up to it. And during that time, we can image it with our, our advanced microscope to be able to, to look at all these, these dynamics. And we think that there's going to be a lot more information we can get from these tissues um, by doing this way. And then, of course, you can always kill it and fix the tissue, the standard uh, histology process. Uh, but we yeah. think that we're going to see more of this, more of the in vivo, more of the living biopsy. Um, I don't know if this is ridiculous, but could you ever miniaturize a system where you could literally put it, I don't know, inside the, someone's intestine, for instance, and literally in vivo with like a, a mm. tiny camera and laser see things? Or is that just certain? No, no, that's definitely a direction we're headed to. Because um, as, as many people know, there's uh, all sorts of optical instruments that can be inserted into the body. There are, are uh, endoscopes that can go down the, you know, the GI tract into the respiratory tract. Most of these have you know, cameras that they're just using to look at the surface of tissue. Um, with this type of imaging, we can also deliver these optical pulses through optical fibers. And we think we can send those fibers into the body as well. So there may be a, a camera that looks at the surface of the tissue, uh, and then they can use our technique to be able to look microscopically at the, you know, below the surface and with much higher resolution to be able to look at those cells. So we think that um, uh, you know, with some engineering of these uh, beam delivery systems, we believe we can do this type of in the body. So what kinds of things have you been looking at? You said you can see individual cells, you can see immune function. Um, have you isolated, let's say, uh, you know, a eukaryotic cell and literally looked at the substructures, the organelles and the, you know, the structure of the cell or bacteria? Have you, you know, tried to train this on a bacteria swimming in culture and see if you can uh, <laughs> see deeper into it? Yeah, we've been really excited about all the, all these ideas, what we can use. And, and the main idea is that we can now get access to functional metabolic uh, signals from these cells. So one of our main focus has been on uh, actually putting this technology onto an, a portable cart, a medical cart, that we've taken into the operating room during uh, breast cancer surgery for humans. And for instance, when the surgeon removes that breast, that tissue mass, that uh, we've been able to image that tissue in real time right there in the operating room and been able to look at making some of these, these measurements. And so what we look at is we look at the cells that are present. We look at the, the collagen and the structure of the tissue. Um, we can tell some idea about how 
aggressive the tumor is by looking at how metabolically active the cells are. So generally, you know, tumor cells are going to be more metabolically, and those signatures show up very clearly on our, our, our imaging. So um, that's one way for us to look at um, the tumor cell. Now, I had mentioned these extracellular vesicles, and that's been a really exciting area for us because uh, people, the whole research medical and scientific communities have recognized that these vesicles are very important in a lot of normal biological processes, but also in disease such as cancer. And cells will put out these vesicles. They're essentially packages of signaling molecules that they, they, they package and they put out and they circulate through the body and they get taken up by other cells. And in fact, that's how cells will communicate with one another, even completely across the body, um, is through these vesicles. Now in cancer, these tumor cells rev up and they, they put out many, many more, many folds orders of magnitude more of these vesicles. And all of these vesicles um, carry with them uh, a signature that resembles or replicates that of the parent cell. So what we've found is that with our imaging, we're able for the first time to be able to detect these vesicles uh, and not only detect them and quantify how many there are, but, but also measure their signature, their metabolic signature. And in fact, from that, we can tell how aggressive a tumor may be just by simply looking at these vesicles. So that's very exciting to us because what that means is that um, if somebody has a cancer somewhere and we can be able to sample those vesicles, they appear in blood, they appear in even in urine um, as well as tissue. Uh, but if we can sample those, we can then tell if those vesicles came from a tumor cell or, and in fact, how aggressive that tumor uh, is. So this for us has been really exciting because that means we don't have to necessarily image the tumor. We can image the signals that are coming from those. Um, and so that's been a very you know, exciting avenue for us to apply this. So what have you seen about the tumor microenvironment specifically that maybe science didn't know before? Yeah. So as I mentioned, a lot of, um, what science knew before is the structure. So uh, we can see structural changes, the, you know, that a tumor cell, a mass, you know, a tumor creates is a massive tumor cells. Uh, we can see changes in, in the vasculature. These are structural changes that we're all familiar with. But what we're starting to discover too is now we can get images that show, you know, which cells are more metabolically active. And we're seeing some cells uh, are metabolically active more so than others. And we can start to differentiate, okay, this is a normal fibroblast versus here's a tumor cell. Um, we can see these vesicles and we see a lot more them being produced from the tumor cells compared to normal cells. Uh, in that microenvironment, we see how the, the collagen structure has changed. We, we can start to see these, um, again, a high density of vesicles. In fact, that was the clinical study we did, um, and that was published in Science Advances December, where we took a, a portable imaging system and brought it into the operating room. We are looking at these vesicles from these tissue samples, and we could even predict, we can see that there was a statistically significant difference or increase in the number of vesicles compared to controls. And again, depending on how aggressive the tumor is, we could statistically differentiate how aggressive that. So what this suggests is that just by looking at the microenvironment, even a small little area of the tissue, we could um, tell a lot about what's going on in the patient and you know how aggressive that. Are you able to tell uh, the different types of vesicles? Are you able to pick up any surface features or interior features? I know they're tiny, um, but you're just yeah, able to count yeah. them. Yeah, 
Yeah, so we could do a couple of things. So these vesicles, um, and cells put out different types of vesicles. So the smallest are called X's, and those are usually between 50 nanometers and usually up to about 300, 400 nanometers in size. Then there are microvesicles, which are from about 300 nanometers up to about 1,000 nanometers or a micron. And then greater than that, there are what's called apoptotic bodies. These are larger vesicles that cells put out when the cells are actually... Um, what we're sensitive to is, is those smaller ones. And because of their size, because they contain what we believe is a high amount of the coenzyme NADH, we're able to detect the fluorescence from those. So NADH, as I said, was one of the, the autofluorescent molecules involved in metabolism. And it's one of those, those molecules detectable free. Now, what, what we think ha is happening is that you have an aggressive tumor cell. And that tumor cell has a high metabolism, and it's sending out these vesicles. And these vesicles contain a small amount of the cytoplasm from the original parents. So if the parent cell is highly aggressive, that means it's going to have signaling molecules, coenzyme molecules, in the vesicles that are, are essentially sampling what the parent cell has. So what we see is not only we can not only count the number of vesicles, but we can look at the optical signature is coming from the vessel, and we can sample how metabolically active or what me metabolic molecules are present in those vesicles. And as I said, they're sort of representing the original parent cell, and, and that's why we can make that correlation back. We, we can say, here's a vesicle that has a high amount of NAD, and therefore it came from a very aggressive tumor cell in the body. Um, and so, yes, more than just counting, we can characterize these vesicles optically. But even within a certain size range, can you tell surface features of them or can you identify different kinds of vesicles, even you know, beyond yeah, size? So that's, correct, correct. Yeah, that's, so that's a, a major question that the whole field is, is grappling. Um, it's very difficult uh, to, to really identify what are the surface uh, receptors or molecules on these vesicles, it's also very difficult to identify exactly what the content is. Um, people have used mass spectrometry and, and uh, other types of labeling techniques to identify different populations of vesicles. Um, but we're, our optical techniques, again, because they're label-free, are not sensitive to all of those specific markers. What we're looking at is sort of the metabolic um, composition of that vesicle. I should also, you know, maybe point out that as a community, there's a lot of interest in these vesicles, but really how those are analyzed is that, that scientists um, tissue samples or blood or urine, and they, they run those samples through centrifuge to really filter out all the, the cellular debris and then really just extract and isolate the vesicles, which are very small in size. When you do that, though, you, you sort of lose the spatial information where they, and that's, I think, what's a real powerful uh, advantage of our imaging is that we're able to image tissue and we can see vesicles that now have spatial contact. You know, some vesicles are near cells, some vesicles are in the vasculature. Um, and what we're seeing is that vesicles are very different depending on where they're located in the tissue. And again, most of the, the ways that we analyze these today, you lose that if you don't image. So I think there's going to be a lot more that we can learn from just the imaging, the spatial distribution of where those vesicles are. Um, have you been able to count the numbers? You said tumors put out a lot more than regular tissue. How many more? And are they just going crazy, spitting them out? Like, what do you observe? They are, yeah. So that's, it's several orders of magnitude more. Um, um, look at the paper that we submitted. So, um, there, so what we looked at in this case was 
we've looked at a number of, of tissue samples from breast cancer patients. And then we looked at, uh, as a control, we looked at breast tissue uh, from women that were undergoing breast reduction surgery. So breast tissue coming out, but they had no prior history. And um, what we showed is that between, um, between those two groups, there was a really significant statistically difference, uh, the numbers. And it's roughly uh, just looking, I would say, a, a four to five-fold difference in the density of these vesicles. Um, and that's how we characterize this, how many vesicles per nanoliter uh, of volume in each of those. But, uh, but clearly a significant you know, difference between those. And then we also looked at the grade. So in the case of breast cancer, we looked at invasive ductal carcinoma, so invasive. And, and these have different, different grades, histological grades based on what a pathologist would as being aggressive, minimally aggressive. And, and there, too, just based on the density, um, you know, we would see statistically differences, uh, grade one, grade And roughly there was about um, a factor of two or three-fold increase in number of... Were they, um, <clears throat> so there's a lot more, and were they of different, was it a different size profile? So we, we didn't really look at the, the size profile distributions between these exosomes, microvesicles, apoptotic bodies. Mostly we focused on the microvesicles. So again, those were roughly between 300 nanometers to about you know, 1,000. And the reason is that this was a, a size, it was still very small, still, you know, those are not imaged by other mechanisms. Um, but they were large enough to contain enough of this NADH, the cytoplasm, the parent cell, to give us a strong uh, And I should point out, you know, when, when people do histologies, tissues, the, the histological processing actually washes out these vesicles. Uh, and so that's why if you just look at you know, most pathology slides, histologies, you won't see these vessels uh, because they're just lost in that processing. Uh, but because we're able to do this in fresh tissue and even in vivo, um, those vesicles are there. And something. If you, um, another weird question, if you had a jar that was the size of the cell and you filled it with vesicles, like how many would fit in there? Meaning if you, the cell was atomized into, you know, into exosomes completely, how many exosomes would make up the entire contents of the cell. The reason I ask is I yeah. wonder how much of a burden, an energetic and material burden this is on a, on a cancer cell to spit out thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of these. Yeah, that's a good question. And so, you know, we, we can do that calculation. Uh, if you assume like a cell is a sphere and, and it's got a diameter of about 10 microns, um, you know, you can calculate that volume and these vesicles are, uh, let's say, 300 nanometer diameter. Um, so they, they have a given volume, um, but, but literally it's going to be, you know, millions, uh, potentially even billions, uh, if they were to fill that entire volume. Now, we have seen evidence that, um, again, in vivo, what we see is we see some cells that, um, and I'll, I'll use some colors here, we see some cells that, that look blue in appearance and their cytoplasm is blue. And the reason that they're blue is because they're filled with these vesicles, and, and as the vesicles uh, get um, exocytosed and put out by these cells, that's, you know, they appear blue uh, on our imaging techniques. Now we see other cells that have a cytoplasm that looks yellow or red and, and the color, the reason for the different colors corresponds to their metabolic activity. So we know that some of these tumor cells, the ones producing vesicles look blue and they put out blue vesicles and we can see some cells are, are really completely full and they're putting out vesicles all around them. And then there's other cells that aren't doing that at all. Um, and so again, we can kind of characterize uh, that way. And one of the things that I mentioned these colors, um, I, I have, I've given some talks 
uh, to, to public groups. And I titled my talk, um, Imaging the True Colors of, and it's because we are using light to excite this tissue. But the light that we get back has specific wavelengths. And what we do is when we create the image, you know, we assign the same color, you know, that we look with our own eye as to what wavelength is coming back from. So while I say, you know, that's a blue cell or a yellow cell, that's truly the wavelength of light that we're getting back from the tissue. Um, and so it's not a false color. It really is the true color of the light that we get back. Um, and so I think that's, that's one way. It's a very interesting way to think about uh, how we view tumors and cancer cells. Uh, and in this way, this is the true color. Oh, okay. So from what I understand, the War Warburg effect is that cancer cells are <clears throat> damaged. I guess their mitochondria are damaged supposedly, and they're metabolically different. They have to ferment uh -huh. instead of, you know, oxidative phosphorylation. So can you see that with your technology? Can you see that the cancer cell itself is colored differently internally? Or is it spitting out exosomes that are uh, different colors, a different color profile than non-cancerous cells? Exactly, yeah. And it, it's based on, you know, that NADH and FAD, these are you know, part of those metabolic pathways. And when a cell gets revved up and is metabolically active, those mitochondria, <clears throat> um, you know, are, are really active, they put out more NADH, more NAD, NADH, NADPH is used in those metabolic pathways. And, and so we see, you know, a, a stronger autofluorescence coming from those greater amounts of NADH. And, uh, and that's how we can characterize. We really can hear it. And I think it's fortuitous. I mean, nature gave us this, this advantage of, of having some naturally autofluorescent molecule in the tissue. And two of those happen to be related to these metabolic signatures. Um, there are others. There's um, keratin, there's tryptophan, there's a few other molecules. There's probably I would say six to 10 different molecules that are commonly autofluorescent um, in biological. And so we, you know, we can make use of the non-invasive. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Are you, I mean, anything jump out at you? Like how different do the cancer cells look versus the normal breast tissue cells, for instance? Are they radically different, subtly different? Does there appear to be some patterning that catches your eye? Yeah. Yeah. So they are very different. And, and um, you know, we, we think one of the things we're looking at now is, uh, we see a, a variation of different colors. So I mentioned yellow and blue. We also see a magenta. And, and so this range of colors um, is, is really a, a spectrum, a continuum. It's not just you know, either or. Um, and so some of our current studies are trying to figure out exactly um, you know, what that tells us about the metabolism of the cell. So you know, can we characterize if, if, for instance, we give certain chemotherapy drugs and that changes or kills some cells or changes the metabolism of certain cells, can we detect that? Can we uh, use this technique to look at how responsive cells or tumors would be chemotherapy? That may be a, a way of monitoring treatment. Um, we also see, we were just very surprised, I think, at the dynamic we saw. So we, we did a study where we looked at, uh, well, we exposed a rat mammary tumor uh, we, we basically did surgery to peel back this exposed, the, and then we went in and did imaging in vivo. And as I mentioned, we saw blood circulating through the vessels, but we were able to see tumor cells and immune cells moving in and out of the vessels. You could see these tumor cells and immune cells aggregating in certain areas. And so it told us that there's a, there's a really a great deal of dynamics going on. Now, one of the things that surprised us is that we also looked at uh, areas of tissue, the breast uh, mammary tissue, that was 
further away from a tumor. And we really we didn't see any of those cell dynamics outside of the blood vessel. Uh, and so it just reminded us that there, there's just this immense amount of, of cell dynamics and activity in and around tumors that's, that I think is just ripe for characterization. Um, this type of dynamics, for instance, how fast is the cell moving? What direction is it moving? Are they aggregating? Are they accumulating somewhere for some reason? All that information is really lost to histology. Um, and yet I think it carries a lot of diagnostic um, you know, information uh, for better treatment. Well, I, I've spoken to uh, a few researchers that talked about uh, tumors having their own microbiome. So mm -hmm. since you, you're approximating in vivo, will you be able to image any microbes in the area? Fungi, yeast, ah. viruses, anything like that. Yeah, so we—that's uh, a whole separate study for us—is to look at um, tracking bacteria with this new label-free technology. Uh, we think we can—we do see the bacteria. Um, we do see that different bacteria have different metabolic signatures, just like uh, we detected in the cell. Um, We—we also see that um, we can see their dynamics. We see them, you know, swimming around. We see them. Uh, you know, moving through the tissue. We also think that there might be some ways of, of killing bacteria because certain bacteria are sensitive to certain ways of light too. So there may be a, a way of optically killing bacteria. We, we do know that ultraviolet light, you know, will, will kill bacteria, but we think there's other wavelengths that actually may. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think the places where we've seen bacteria in and around tumors has been uh, you know, to be honest, where there's really uh, an infection uh, that's concomitant with with that tumor. Um, I mean, typically, uh, you know, a tumor that's developing internally, uh, unless there's, a, you know, a break in the skin or whatever, there may not necessarily be a lot of bacteria present. But uh, but I think what you're saying is is really an interesting um, hypothesis that tumors can actually support, um, you know, bacterial populations as well. Yeah, from what I've learned, they support. I mean, everywhere in the body supports the bacterial population, but tumors have their own distinct microbiome. Have you been able to see any sharing or interaction between the bacteria and the tumor cells, like exosomes passing in and out? Mm. So not specifically with uh, the bacteria, but what we have seen is we've been able to look at, uh, and mo most of this was done in culture of tumor cells, and we've seen these tumor cells, you know, produce these vesicles. We've seen them, um, you know, uh, bruise them internally. We've seen them exocytose them into the media, and then we've seen other cells take them up. So actually, uh, you know, the, the the vesicle actually gets um, endocytosed or taken into the cell, and we see the cell undergo morphological change. In this case, we think it underwent apoptosis immediately after taking that vesicle. So there was perhaps something, some signaling molecule in that vesicle that induced apoptosis or cell death in that, that other cell. Um, there's also a structure called uh, tumor nanotubes or tunneling nanotubes that cells use to communicate from cell to cell. And these are really small tubes that connect cells. And we've seen vesicles being passed from one cell to another through these, these small nanotubes. Uh, and that's a really interesting, uh, you know, signaling process as well. So um, again, I think, you know, opening up this, this ability to image and visualize these changes is going to give us a lot of new information. And you're really suggesting some, some really interesting ideas that we should look at in terms of how bacteria um, uh, reside and, and play a role in and around, you know, that microenvironment. Well, I wonder if bacteria just puts stuff out to the external environment and then cells do, and that's the interaction. Or is there a direct interaction where 
you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess the craziest thing would be if a bacteria extends like a, a pili and it connects to a, you know, one of our mm-hmm. eukarya or a rat cell, let's say, and then vice versa. That would be incredible. But even if you were to identify, oh, this, this tumor cell spit out these exosomes and then look, this bacteria took one up. That would be amazing too, mm-hmm. or vice versa. You know? So you haven't seen any of that of at all yet. No, no, we haven't. But I think that um, we've been very interested in just the human microbiome. And, and I think this is an area for you know, our entire scientific community and medical communities because we're, we're realizing just the, the symbiotic and synergistic relationships that we have, our cells have with bacteria and for, for both good and bad and trying to understand those dynamics and the roles that, that each of these play. Um, you know, is something that we're going to continue to discover, I think, in the next decade and better understand the role that like our gut microbiome has on our overall health. We already know there's links with, you know, obviously with obesity, with diabetes, even neurological function, overall health. Um, and so I think we're going to see many, many more of these types of interactions. I should also um, okay. make a comment that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, one more quick question. Um, <clears throat> another experiment I thought of was, I mean, have you seen any of the tumor cells endocytose take in any exosomes and what if you were to take out, you know, uh, let's say that, you know, the rat had I don't know, 20 different tumors in its breast. You took out two of them. You put them in an environment where they're still alive, but they're separated. Would you ever see any trading of exosomes between, the, you know, one tumor and another? Any communication there? Yeah, no, I think those those are some interesting things that, that because the natural function of these vesicles is the, you know, intracellular communication. Um, you know, I, I think what we've been seeing is... Certainly cells producing these, we've seen evidence in the dish of them taking up and changing function. Uh, in a previous paper um, that we published, I think in 2018, uh, we showed that, um, that these vesicles were present around the tumor. And then we looked at a seemingly normal tissue, um, very remote in the body. And what we showed is that the vesicles that we were seeing there were also coincident or co-localized with cells, normal cells that have changed their metabolism. So it was evidence that said, okay, these vesicles came from a tumor somewhere, but they were taken up by these normal cells and those normal cells had changed their metabolism. So we didn't actually see and visualize the uptake, but we think we saw the effect. Now that has huge implications because traditionally, if we, you know, our traditional way of thinking about cancer is that, you know, a cancer, a cell, it's mutated, it becomes transformed, a cancer cell, that, that cell divides and you start getting a tumor that forms. And when the tumor gets large enough, the cells break off and they metastasize, spread. But what we're seeing with these vesicles is a very different picture. What, what we see is that you may have that mutated tumor cell and that tumor cell starts to put out all these vesicles. Now, these vesicles early on start being distributed throughout the whole body, and they get taken up everywhere. And, and so and those normal cells get transformed, meaning that they, they upregulate their mass production. They become a little more, more metabolically active. Um, what they're really doing is that they are preconditioning you know, the body to support a tumor. And, and so it's not the tumor itself, but it's ramping up all the cells. So when those tumor cells do come along, they're, they're landing in an environment that has already been upregulated in terms of metabolism and mass production, and it's ready. So, so this is a bit frightening um, if this hypothesis is true, because what it means is that we need to think about therapies that intervene much earlier to, to maybe block this, this vesicle production. Um, because, um, you know, for instance, when these vesicles uh, do 
precondition the body? Is that something that's reversible? And we have some, I can give you some examples. We have evidence of this. So we've looked at a number of different tissues from humans with different grades or advanced stages of, of tumors. And we saw that vesicles from some very aggressive tumor or patients with aggressive had a particular signature. And we looked at, we've only seen two cases of tissue or of vesicles from cancer survivors. And these were um, you know, women that had cancer, breast cancer in the past. They were treated. Uh, they had no clinical evidence of any cancer. However, when we looked at their vesicle from their tissues, we saw evidence or signatures of an, a very aggressive cancer. Now, we don't know if that means that they have some underlying aggressive cancer somewhere that has not been detected by their means, or does it mean that their body had already been preconditioned uh, to host tumors and therefore, you know, putting out these types of vesicles. So even though they may not, you know, have an active tumor, their body's been preconditioned by the first tumor and, and, and it's been forever preconditioned and will stay that way. We do know clinically that once somebody has a primary malignancy or cancer and survives, they are always going to be at greater risk for a secondary cancer throughout their whole life. And People have always assumed that that was because they got chemotherapy, they got radiation, they got lots of insults to their cells. And so, you know, those, those treatments can induce cancer as well. But what about the hypothesis that perhaps that first cancer preconditioned their body and now they are always going to be more susceptible to hosting another cancer, you know, later in life? Um, that's a well, very profound... Here. It, it is. Um... It seems like cancers have preferential metastatic location. So yes. is there epidemiological data that shows, okay, someone had you know, breast cancer and then they had a higher risk of cancers where the metastases would normally go? Or do they just have higher risk and have just random cancers? It seems like it would, yeah. if this is true, then that's what would happen. You'd see a higher risk, but specific to the metastatic sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a good question too. And I don't know the exact statistics, but... But we do know, I mean, very often recurrence of cancer happens, you know, either, um, you know, a metastatic uh, site uh, from the original cancer and people think that these, these cells have been dormant, you know, for years, for decades. Um, but, you know, I don't think any study has been done to correlate uh, where these, this, the secondary cancer occurs, say, you know, what has been the vesicle density, right, of that site? Like, did these vesicles, um, did that, that secondary cancer occur? at a site that was primed by, I don't think we know. Since uh, you have this, um, you're able to see, again, inside cells and you're able to see vesicles, um, have you seen biogenesis of vesicles? Have you seen them also internalized and find their final destination within the cell when they're internalized? So our resolution doesn't allow us um, to be able to look at that, that fine of detail. So we have seen you know, vesicles that um, are, are being exocytosed and endocytosed, so in and out of the, of the cells. But um, as far as their formation inside the cell, uh, we, we don't have the resolution to, to track that. Um, and that is a direction, you know, there are a lot of optical techniques called super resolution techniques that, um, that we think would allow us to do some of this. The problem is a lot of these super resolution techniques require or utilize fluorescent labels. So we could do this. We could fluorescently label vesicles and, and maybe use these techniques. Um, but, uh, but it is an active area we're looking at to see whether or not we, in a label-free manner, 
try to, to track these vesicles, you know, inside of, inside of cells. Yeah. A lot of amazing stuff you're working on. It's really, really super cool. So what's, um, yeah, well, what are some specific, yeah. What are some specific experiments that you're, you think will have some resolution for you in the next year or so? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, for us, we're looking at trying to better understand uh, you know, what is inside these vesicles and what roles that they play. So for instance, one thing we've noticed is that we think these vesicles over time, they lose or the, these optical signatures change over time. And we hypothesize that that's because the, you know, the NADH, these coenzymes within the vesicles is changing. Um, we think that there might be a, essentially a functional life to these vesicles. You know, there are many commercial vendors will actually sell uh, vesicles for researchers to buy. But these vesicles may be quite old. Uh, and so while they're there structurally, uh, they may not be functionally active or that functional activity may have changed. So we're, we're looking at, uh, can we identify this and track these in cells and the tissues over time? We're also looking at, um, again, uh, a lot of machine learning and various types of neural networks to be able to, to use this information that we get uh, for diagnosis and to really be able to identify uh, what does it mean when we have these vesicles, these labeled, and can that be for more diagnostic? So I think it's, for us, it's it's a really exciting time because we've got um, you know, this new technology, new tool, and there's just a, so many different applications. Uh, applications. We're really excited about where they're going to go. Excellent. What's, what's the best way for people to learn more, see some of your papers, and get in contact? Yeah, so we have a, a website, uh, my group's website. Uh, my group's uh, the Biophotonics Imaging Laboratory at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, our website is biophotonics.illinois.edu. And uh, through our website, uh, we've got all our publications are there that can be downloaded. We've got a lot of background material on, on just uh, the technology that we use. And uh, I think that's a great entry point. Um, I'm also open if people want to contact me and um, happy to talk about ideas and new things that we might be able to do with this technology. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you for coming. It's been a great call. Well, thank you, Richard. It's been a, a pleasure. And, Thanks again. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.